You are listening to the sermon audio from 12th Street Baptist Church in Rainbow City, Alabama. More information about our church can be found online at www.12th.co. Good morning, everybody. I'm excited to be in the Word with you. If you brought your Bible with you, if you have it on your phone, I encourage you to turn in the Scriptures to Matthew chapter 18. We are following up the same passage we had last week, just the next passage where Jesus takes it one step further for us. If you're new to us, we are in the middle of a series called Why Can't We Be Friends? And as you can see, it's about resolving conflict biblically. Uh, We are sinners. No matter where you fall on the side of salvation, we are sinners. Whether you're saved already or will be saved or have not yet been saved, And uh, because we are sinners, we will have conflict. That is without a doubt. There will be conflict in our home lives. There will be conflict in our workplaces. There will be conflict in our churches. You think it shouldn't be, but it is because we are people. And we need the grace of God in all of our relationships. And there's going to be times where we're misunderstood. There's going to be times where we do things wrong. There's going to be times where we do things we shouldn't have done or we should have done things we didn't do. And there will be conflict that comes from that. There's conflict, we'll be honest, we'll be real honest with you, there's conflict even when we don't do anything. You can just sit there and conflict can happen, amen? Just by how you're looking at me, what are you thinking when you look at me? I saw that glance over to me when that preacher said those words, right? These are all things that can happen and conflict can be generated even when we feel like we haven't done anything wrong. And last week we talked about what do you do if your brother sins against you? We talked about how it's your responsibility if you're the one that's been offended, It's not their responsibility. They may not even know they've done anything. It is your responsibility to go to that person one-to-one, keeping it between you and him alone so that you might gain your brother. And that if he won't listen to you, if he listens, you've gained your brother. If not, then you take a couple others with you, hopefully spiritually mature people that can come and be a part of the conversation so that they can then determine if if everybody is walking in line with Scripture. And if not then you then take it before the church. And if still your brother will not listen to you, and that means if he will not try to work towards restoration, doesn't mean you're always going to agree. It doesn't mean that you're going to agree on who's right or who's wrong or if there is a right or a wrong, but it means if you're not willing to work towards restoration, then what we see is that once you're taken before the church, he says these crazy words where he says, let that person be to you like a Gentile or a tax collector, which means to be like an unbeliever. Now, again, that doesn't mean that you never have anything to do with them. That's what the Pharisees, the religious people of the day would have said. But Jesus went to those Gentiles and tax collectors and gave them the grace of the gospel in himself. And we, too, are to pursue restoration if they will repent. That is the goal always, is restoration and reconciliation. And the reason why, as we summed it up over the last two weeks, and we'll be for this week and next week, the overarching kind of statement we're walking with is that the gospel of Jesus always, always results in radically altered relationships. It always results in radically altered relationships. And that means, brothers and sisters, that when conflict comes, we will approach, walk through, and resolve that conflict in a way that might look different from how we've been taught to do that if it's not according to the scriptures. And we will have to do some hard things, even as the one who is not the one doing the offending. As we saw last week, even if you're not, you're the one offended, not the one doing the wrong, and you still have to be the one to go to the other person and try to resolve the conflict in a healthy biblical way. Today is no different. In fact, I might even say for many of us, it's going to be more difficult because it's one thing to go to someone and try to talk it out. It's another thing 
when you get done with that, or even if you never get to have that, or if you get to have that time, but you just feel like it wasn't good enough, or even if the other person does exactly what they should, the hardest part for many of us is actually forgiving someone. Forgiveness is something easy to talk about. It's easy to say we've done it, but it's actually more difficult to do it in a, in a total, all-encompassing way. I don't know about you, but I oftentimes think I've forgiven someone until I see them face to face. And then I realize there's angst in my heart. Oftentimes I'll think that I've forgiven someone, but then I'll hear their name or think about something that happened or maybe suppose that that person has something to do with it. And next thing you know, I've got frustration in my heart. And the real reason is not because they've re-offended me. It's because I have not been able to get to a point where I could truly forgive them. And I say that not as in everything outside of you has to work towards that point, but you and I are commanded to pursue forgiveness toward others. And Jesus walks out of that conversation in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, about going to the one who's offended you. And he walks right in to a conversation and a parable, a teaching moment to his disciples about forgiveness. And that's where we're going to be today. Look, if you would, with me in Matthew 18, verse 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? That should be a pretty big number. In fact, the time rabbinically, all the teachers would say is you have to do at least three times you forgive someone. And Peter's taking it to the next level. He's saying, should I do it seven times? He's thinking, man, I got this down. I figured it out. Seven times, the time of completion, the time of perfection. He says, seven times, and Jesus answered him. He said, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times 7. Now, those of you who are math people, that doesn't mean that he's talking about 490 and the 491th time. You're like, 491st time, you're like, nope, done, no more. It's meant to throw out this idea that you never get over forgiving. You never reach a point where you're supposed to stop forgiving. This doesn't mean you shouldn't be wise. It doesn't mean you shouldn't be careful. It doesn't mean you shouldn't keep yourself in a safe place if it's a dangerous position. You don't want to put yourself in that But it does mean that you never get beyond true forgiveness according to the scriptures. You never get beyond the need for you to forgive others. Not necessarily that they need forgiveness, they need that, but that you never get beyond actually needing to forgive others. There's a big reason for this. Ultimately, the greatest reason the scriptures are going to point to today is the fact that if you're unwilling to forgive at that level, your own forgiveness by Jesus is at stake. It's a huge statement, but it is true. But I would argue that's not even the greatest reason we need to move towards forgiveness. Let's look at verse 23. Jesus picks it right up with a story. He says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, it's hard to do equations for what that's really worth because it's hard to put it in the context of the culture that day, but let's make it simple. A talent might be what you would earn if you had a good wage in a year or a year and a half of work. It might be. And 10,000 is the largest single particular word in the Greek for the largest number possible in one particular word in the Greek. So he's basically saying an exorbitant amount of money beyond recognition. In today's world, that could mean anywhere from millions to a trillion dollars. We don't even know exactly. But he says here, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. 
So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Now, a couple of things here, that word have patience, that word means be long-suffering with me. That's used all throughout the Old Testament, talking about God, how he is long-suffering with us. Suffering comes at you and you can't always control it, but you are the author of whether or not you are long-suffering, that you'll put up with things and you'll put up with them, and you'll put up with them in order to stay the course and do the right thing. And he says to this master, he says, be long-suffering with me. And he says, I will pay you everything. Now, that's an untruth right off the cuff. If this guy had that much money, there's no way he'd be, be, able to, he'd be in this position anyway to be having to pay back somebody else for it. This money would be such a large amount of money that he would never be able to pay this back in a lifetime of his own volition, of his own work. The likelihood that he could would be out the window for anybody that heard this story. Look at what this master says in verse 27. Out of pity for him, that word is actually compassion, translated everywhere else in the Gospels, talking about Jesus, the word is compassion. Out of compassion for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Everybody hearing this would have been like, no way, that's crazy. That guy would, the king would never do that. He would never forgive a debt like that. It would hurt his own ability to be king. All of his money would be gone. This is an exorbitant amount of money that would impact his ability to be the king and to be in charge and have authority and to maintain that and to maintain all the things needed in the kingdom. People would have thought that was crazy. Out of compassion for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Verse 28, here's the turn. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. That's about a hundred days wages. A denarii is about a day's wage. So you think of going from about a few million to a trillion dollars that you owe somebody. And this guy now is another servant, an equal servant, not a servant to the other servant. He's a fellow servant of the king, right, of the master. And he owes this other servant a hundred denarii. You're talking about maybe a few thousand dollars. When the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him. You hear the violence? Seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, be long-suffering with me, and I will pay you. Sound familiar? He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. What a different reaction by the one who's just been forgiven. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. We all hope and pray we never hear those words from our master. You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers. And that word actually, more rightly, is delivered him over to the tormentors, to the torturers, until he should pay all his debt, which would be never. It's a life sentence. Verse 35, Jesus pulls out, looks at the crowd and says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Honestly, this ranks right up there with what I've said is Matthew 7, that's some of the scariest terminology in all of Scripture. 
the fact that if I do not forgive my brother or my sister in the same way that I risk not actually being forgiven. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to lose your salvation if you're truly saved. What it means is that if you're truly his, you will be like Jesus and that you forgive others truly, totally. It doesn't mean it's easy. But thankfully, we have some good clues in this text about what it means to do it. So let's unpack them. In fact, all of it can be centered back on verse 27. Look back at verse 27 with me. And out of pity or out of compassion for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Let me pray for us. God, we need your compassion now. We need your powerful Holy Spirit to reveal the strongholds in our lives where we are unwilling to forgive. Lord, if there are such strongholds, I beg you to break them down today. I beg you to reveal your compassion toward us, that it might lead us to being compassionate toward others, and that we might have our sin rooted out by your Holy Spirit, that we might see it, that we might hate it, and that we might repent of it so that we would be in line and in step with the gospel of your Son, Jesus. Lord, help us to love you the way that you've loved us and give us love for one another the way that you have shown love for us in Jesus, your son, who died for us on the cross to forgive us our sins. Lord, give us eyes to see those who need forgiveness and let us be the ministers of reconciliation that you've made us into as your servants. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at verse 27 again. And out of compassion for him, out of pity. I'm going to use the word compassion. Pity has such a negative connotation in the English language. The word there is the exact same as you see all throughout Scripture for Jesus. Compassion, out of compassion for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. I'm going to give you three points out of this passage today. And this first one is simple but not easy. Forgiveness Biblical, gospel-centered forgiveness is always motivated by compassion for the debtor. Biblical forgiveness is always motivated by compassion toward the debtor. I told you compassion is all throughout the scriptures according to Jesus. It's the most often used emotional descriptor of Jesus in the gospels. Matthew 9.35 and on. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. In Matthew 14.14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. You see how his compassion drives him to action. Luke seven twelve through 15, as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. That's acting out of compassion towards her. Luke fifteen twenty, the story of the prodigal son. You know that story, right? The prodigal's off, squandered all this living. He basically told his dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance now. He goes off, squanders it all the way, trying to figure out how to get back to his dad. My dad's a, a, a forgiving man. If I could just go there and be his servant, that'll be good enough. 
And as he arose and came to his father, in verse 20, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. And that's a picture of our heavenly father as he sees us. Compassionate in how he views us. And here, this one, says in verse 27, out of compassion for this man, the master released him and forgave him the debt. Listen, forgiveness never means there shouldn't be confrontation. We see the master confronting this guy. But forgiveness always emanates from a heart of compassion toward the debtor. There's many reasons why we might seek to forgive someone because we want to, quote, be the better person out of our own virtue because we feel like it's the right thing to do. But that's a burden we carry because we thought we don't want to be a good person or a right person. That's not really the way to do this. It's not the way we should teach our kids, although I've heard it come out of my own mouth. We don't teach people to forgive based off of it's the right thing to do or because it's being the better person or because you want somebody to forgive you. We forgive because we've been forgiven. We love Jesus because he first loved us. And now we love others because he's loved us and loves others as well. And we should forgive out of compassion, the same compassion. So if you don't have it in your heart, you need to begin praying and asking for it. Oh, Lord, give me the love that you have for this person that I don't want to forgive. Give me the love that you have for the person that has wronged me, whether rightfully or perceived. Give me compassion for them the way that you had compassion that drove you to give your son on the cross for them. This is what it means to love one another. When you've been wronged, it's easy to see the other person through only that one wrong thing. But we must strive and struggle to see them the way the Lord sees them. That only comes through much prayer and asking for God to give us eyes to see like that. You know what I'm talking about. I always go to this one. It's easy to do. It doesn't offend too many of us too easily. When you're turning out of the parking lot today and you get over and you try to turn on to 77, and if you turn in front of somebody, they're probably going to yell out in their car that you're an idiot. Right? That's what we do, isn't it? Whatever the word is you use. We're looking at them through the one instance of what we feel was wrong. It may be that we were going too fast. It may be they had plenty of space. It may be they didn't break the law. It may be that they did. We don't, we can't always know that for sure. But what we do know is that when that happens and somebody does it and they pull out in front of us, we see them through the lens of that one thing. Hey, you idiot, pull it out in front of me. Gosh. They may be highly intelligent, way more intelligent than you are. They may have been all in the right. Just your perception was off. We, never, we don't even know sometimes. But it's not right to see people through the lens of one particular thing. We must see them as God sees them. We see here this guy who owed this guy an exorbitant amount of money that he could never pay back that would ruin him probably. And what does he do? He saw him and had compassion on him. And he forgave him. Look at verse 28 through 30. When that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, that I have to struggle with in my own heart regularly, even as a redeemed one, a sinner saved by grace. 
vehemence and violence, even if it's just in the heart. They betray a heart that refuses to forgive. Vehemence in the heart, violence in the heart even, betrays a heart that refuses to forgive. That can be either demonstrated directly or indirectly towards someone. Tim Keller says it well in a sermon on this same exact passage when he says, there are all sorts of ways of making the other person pay. You can insult them. You can be cold to them. You can be harsh to them. You can withdraw your friendship from them. You can try to hurt them professionally. There are all sorts of direct ways, he says. There are more indirect ways, which is you gossip about them, you slander them, you ruin their reputation with other people. In fact, there's even indirect ways to hurt people by not being direct with your revenge, to say, like, I'm, going to take re- I'm not going to take revenge on you. It would be beneath me to do that. You know, this is a way of indirectly despising them, he says. In other words, there are all sorts of ways, but here's the point. When you're doing this, you want to hurt them. Why? Because, and he says, let's be completely honest, when I inflict pain on someone who hurts me, it makes me feel better. I'm paying down the debt for them. We're getting even. Gospel forgiveness is always motivated by compassion for the debtor. Just as Jesus has had compassion and continues to have compassion toward us, debtors, sinners, transgressors. Look at verse 27 again. And out of pity for him, out of compassion for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him. Forgiveness, secondly, always means releasing the debt owed to you. It always means letting go of the debt that is owed to you. Somebody has sinned against you, they've hurt you. To truly forgive means to let that go in its totality. Not just a little bit, not just on the surface. And here's the problem. Oftentimes I think I've forgiven in totality, right? But then when I have something else creep up on me, that's when I realize, oh, no, 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 it's still in there. I haven't really forgiven. It's a long, arduous process but it always includes releasing the debt that's owed to you. Let me say a statement. We love the passage on 1 Corinthians 13. We like to talk about it at weddings, although it's not really about weddings. It's about a church gone crazy. It talks about how you should love one another. And this is what it says in a brief statement, then I'll read it. We will never be justified by harboring resentment toward another person. It never will justify our own hearts, our own righteousness by harboring resentment. In the ESV, it says it in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 5, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It's hard to understand what that word resentful means in this category. I think it's more well fleshed out. Actually, you look that word up and it gives the exact wording used in the NIV that expounds on it. I'm going to read the NIV's version of those verses. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. That patient, by the way, love is long-suffering. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no account of wrongs. Seven times? No, 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 no. Seventy times seven. We don't harbor resentment. It doesn't mean you don't stay in a safe place if something's happening. You should not be in that place again. 
It doesn't mean you're not wise, but it means you don't hold on to that resentment. You don't hold on to the account of the wrongs. Once it's done, it's done. You forgive and let go. You release the debt. Our justification comes not from our being righteous, but through God's mercy toward us in Jesus. That's where our justification comes from. Not in that we are better than another, not in that we are more righteous than another, but that we are sinners who need a righteous Savior, and His name is Jesus. And He died on the cross in our place, forgiving us, even though we do not deserve it and can never deserve it. That is grace. That is mercy. That is the forgiveness that's greater than 10,000 talents. That is true, eternal forgiveness. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's everybody. That's all of us. And we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is the payment of the price of that sin in Jesus through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is where we find forgiveness. Verse 33 through 35. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers, the tormentors, until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. We know we are from God if we show the same mercy toward others that he has shown toward us. The reason we feel self-righteous in a moment where we've been transgressed against is because we do not rightfully see our own sin and our own need for redemption. Therefore, let us begin every day, close every day with asking God to reveal our need for the Savior and reminding us that our need is just as woeful as any others. And then let us receive the glorious, overwhelming, refreshment of the Holy Spirit who brings us the reminder of our forgiveness in Jesus and then let us then give that to others. It is not easy, but it is the way of our Master. Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Or in his prayer, he says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We love this prayer, don't we? Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We run through that part very quickly often, at least I do. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But Jesus doesn't let it go by. He hits it again. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Oh, Lord, forgive us. Forgive me where I have not forgiven. Enable me to forgive the way that you have forgiven me, Father. Please, Work in my heart that I might truly be yours. James 2.13 says, For judgment is without mercy. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Charles Spurgeon on this idea of forgiveness says, This is the great moral lesson. We incur greater wrath by refusing to forgive than by all the rest of our indebtedness. We cannot escape from condemnation if we refuse to pardon others. 
If we are forgiven words only, but not from our hearts, we remain under the same condemnation. Continued anger against our brother shuts heaven's gate in our own faces. The heavenly father of the Lord Jesus will be righteously wrathful against us and will deliver us to the tormentors if we do not from our hearts forgive everyone his brother's trespasses. Forgive everyone his brother's trespasses. Lord, he says, make me of a meek, forgiving spirit. May my heart be as ready to pardon offenses as it is to beat. May it be so for us, brothers and sisters. Let us remember that the grace we have been shown is meant to lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. May it be that our hearts would be softened by our own sin and forgiveness of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we would then therefore be pushed by the Spirit to become ministers of reconciliation, forgiving others in a fullness of forgiveness without end. For this is what looks like Jesus toward us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. And out of compassion for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. You recognize that the master who forgave the debt didn't just forgive a debt. He ate that debt himself. He bore the burden of that debt himself. He carried the burden of that because now he is without all that was his. Now he is the one who's given up all that debt, all the millions or trillion of dollars that he was due, that was his, gone now. He had to carry that. Forgiveness means you pay the cost of the debt yourself when you forgive others. Sounds crazy. Yes, Jesus died for all the sin. But when you forgive someone, it's costly to you. You have to give up something to do it. You give up your perceived rights I say perceived because we are enslaved to God. We have no rights like we think we do often. But when you forgive others, you pay the cost for forgiving others. It means you can't pay down the debt by punishing them, making you feel better. It means you have to walk in such a way that shows that you love them as Jesus has loved us. And that is difficult. It costs. It is heavy sometimes. There's always a cost in forgiving someone, yet it is commanded of us. In Ephesians 4, 29 through 32, it says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That as God in Christ forgave you means just like he did, we are to do. See, that's what the gospel is, isn't it? The gospel is the fact that you and I deserve condemnation for all eternity because we have not lived up to the standard. We've been made in the image of God to reflect the glory of God, and yet we have reflected our own glory. We've fallen short of the glory of God, and therefore we deserve punishment for that. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. 
And so Jesus stepped out of eternity to become one of us, to seek and to save the lost, to become one of us so that he might become like us, not just in nature, but in totality, that he might pursue us and live perfectly the life we could not live, and then to die the death that we deserve on the cross, not just a physical death, but all of God's wrath that we deserve poured out on his own one and only son who would never deserve it. We deserve it, but he poured all that wrath out on him so that he could drink it down to the last and die the death that we deserve so that we could be liberated and freed from that and forgiven from that debt that we owe. The debt of our transgressions, the debt of our sins. Forgiveness for Christ cost him everything. Not his forgiveness, our forgiveness. He paid everything out for us. Psalm 103 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. The real truth is we either try to force the debtor to pay the debt or we pay it for them. That's the picture of the gospel. That's what Jesus did for us. Thankfully, he doesn't force us to pay it. He paid it for us. In other words, if we will become like Jesus then we must carry the weight of paying the debt of those we forgive. But when we realize how God has done this for us in Jesus, the burden becomes light, and our paying the debt becomes a privilege and brings us freedom. You see, it's hard. You say, I can never never forgive them. I can never get over what they've done to me. I, I can never look at them the same way again. Oh, but by the grace that God has shown us and looking at us with eyes of love when we are yet sinners, deserving of his condemnation, And when he looks upon us, he sees us now clothed in the righteous perfection of his son, Jesus. And therefore, we can now see others in that way. And that burden seems so heavy. I can never do that. I can never live with myself. No. It's okay because we're dead. We're a new creation. We've been made alive in Christ. And now that burden that would be so heavy otherwise is now made light. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My burden is light. The burden is becoming like him because he's done so much for us that he would shape us into his own image. Either way, though, you will pay the cost. Will you pay that by forgiving others and being like Jesus because he first loved us? Or will you pay the cost by not forgiving him and recognizing one day that you were not his? That are the only two options. Those are the only two options we see in the scriptures, as heavy as that is. Let me give us some questions to lead us home today. Questions for our heart that God has pressed on my heart. Questions that I have to wrestle with. And so maybe it's some that might be used by the Holy Spirit to prick your heart that you might need to wrestle with. How much grace are we willing to afford others? Are we even willing to forgive someone seven times? I mean, right, that doesn't mean that they did something one time and you need to forgive them seven times for the one thing. No, no, no. That means that they've transgressed you seven times on that one thing and you still are forgiving them. Are we willing to even do that much like Peter suggested? I find it hard in my heart to do that. How mindful are we of small grievances? How mindful are we of the small grievances? Do we we hold on to those small things even after restoration has been sought? And what qualifies as small? Small compared to one another, it might be not very small at all, but small compared to what it took for Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, everything is small in light of that. The one who would die for the ungodly, the only holy one. 
How about this? Do we hold tightly to the transgressions of others even though our Heavenly Father has removed our own transgressions from Him as far as the East is from the West? For how many of these transgressions to which we hold so tightly might not even be transgressions at all? How do we know unless we first go in Matthew 18, right? Even then we might still disagree on them. We must hold loosely. We may think we've been wronged and sinned against when it might just be that it's not exactly sin. I have to struggle in my own heart with this regularly because I often want to be so self-righteous when someone has offended me that I think they've purposely sinned against me when it may not be so. How can I even know? How many might be rightly real and how many might be perceived? But either way, which ones of those do we feel the right to hold on to when we stare into the gospel of Jesus? When is it time to let them go? I believe that time is the moment you realize you have held on to it, is the moment that we should let them go. This is the way of Christ for us. And out of compassion for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Let's listen to that like it's spoken to us directly. Out of compassion for you and me, the debt that is overwhelming and we can never pay back, the master, our God, our Lord and Savior, has released us and forgiven us our debt. Let us be like Jesus, brothers and sisters. Let us seek the Lord today and see where we are not. Let us repent and turn to the Lord. Today may be the first time you've ever heard this truth, the gospel being in your heart now, maybe for the first time. If so, I beg you to repent of your sin and turn toward Jesus. To turn to him and let him be the one that brings you healing and restoration and forgiveness so that you too might be ministers of reconciliation, ministers of forgiveness for the sake of his glory and for our joy and for the salvation of souls of those who do not yet know him. And we're done today. If you need to talk to somebody about forgiveness or you need to pray with somebody, I will be here until you're gone. Do not leave this place without dealing with the Lord even as we sing. Let us pray. Father, we love you. We do not love you enough. Father, we want to forgive as you've forgiven, but we have not forgiven that much. But Lord, in your power and by your spirit, you can enable us. You can press into us and make us yearn for that. You can give us the heart that you have for those in our faith family or in our families at home or in our workplaces or where we play that we harbor resentment towards, that we are unwilling to forgive. Or Lord, maybe even today we thought we had forgiven, but Lord, today you might prick our heart, pierce our hearts and reveal to us that we have not truly get forgiven to the level at which is necessary. Lord, would you work in us and would you not leave us alone until we are shaped more and more to look like Jesus, especially in how we forgive others because you first forgave us. Let us live this out and be the light of the gospel for a place and a community that needs you so much. Let us be the faith family that lives these truths out for your glory. Let me be the pastor who lives these things out for your kingdom's sake, for the fame of your son, Jesus. Let us be the people who have been saved from much by the blood of the one who's worth more than all of us combined and that he would be magnified and lifted high 
the holy, righteous, perfect, and beautiful and glorious name of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon audio from 12th Street Baptist Church. Feel free to share this with anyone you meet, and we pray that this sermon helped you to be more like Jesus as 12th Street seeks to be a place where we can find forgiveness for the past and hope for the future.